welcome to this week's episode of From the Lighthouse. Today I'm joined in the studio by writer, poet and essayist Michelle Carl to discuss the short story A Wall of Water. Michelle Carl is an Australian author of Indian heritage. They have received awards in poetry and fiction, notably the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award for Letter to Pessoa, the Kingston Writing School Hilary Mantel International Short Story Competition, the Arts Queensland Val Vallis Award and the Red Room Poetry Fellowship. Vishvarupa was shortlisted in the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards. The Herring Lass was published by ARC. Wolf, their debut novel, is forthcoming with Hachette in 2022. Hi, Michelle. Uh, it's lovely to be here with you today and discussing your wonderful short story, A Wall of Water, from Letter to Pessoa. Welcome. Hi, Michelle. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here and to be talking to you about the collection and the story. Yeah, so I'd love to actually hear uh, right at the start just a little bit about uh, how um, writing uh, Wall of Water came about. Maybe just tell us a little bit about the story itself, what it's what it's about uh, for anyone who might not have read it. Yeah, yeah, that, um, so Wall of Water, um, it has a bit of a history. Um, it, so that it tells the story of a Nepalese protagonist whose name is Sarita and um, she is working as a lawyer, a refugee lawyer in Sydney and she also has a backstory. So it's set at the time of the Christmas Island boat disaster when um, I think it was 2010 when like a boat, an Indonesian boat carrying refugees from Iraq and Iran smashed against the rocks at Christmas Island. It wasn't like intercepted by the customs or border police, Australian border police and um, as a Part of that tragedy, um, 50 people lost their lives, including, I think, you know, quite a number of children as well. So it was really a devastating um, episode. And I think it was a really framing episode at the time um, in terms of a re-examination of um, Australia's response to refugees and outsiders and how we were kind of like managing those those the, the notion of borders and the notion of what was our hospitality to people who were um, suffering from political oppression in other countries how as a country were we responding to that and just on a humanitarian basis how could this accident have happened you know, off the coast of Australia um, when um, the, the maritime authorities would have known about it, did get notice of it. And basically the really tragic part about it was that there were so many people on the island watching this happen, watching people drowning, and many of those people gave um, evidence at the inquiry that followed in the following year and they also were deeply traumatised by watching this and many of them say that they'll never forget it, they'll live with this trauma. Um, so, and, and I think it was something that really kind of 
shattered a lot of people in Australia and really um, was a, a moment when many of us felt the despair of the way that in the name of our country, how we were as a community and a nation dealing with refugees and not, you know, allowing these kinds of things to be become political, um, uh, you know, opportunities to, to make arguments from, from certain, you know, bipartisan arguments around how we should, um, uh, why there was a need for um, offshore detention, mandatory detention, and why we had to stop the people smugglers and so forth and so on, rather than actually looking at the actual humanitarian things that as, as a nation we should not have let this happen and that we should be much more um, open to the suffering of other people and, and you know, um, yeah, and, and less, far less judgmental around it. So um, I think people were deeply disturbed and, of course, I was deeply disturbed and so um, that was kind of, I wanted to create this character, I wanted to invent a character that that was, that that was kind of powerless in many ways. Like she, there she was, she was working through the legal system, but she herself has a backstory of trauma. There's a lot of trauma in the story. I think I wanted to bring up how trauma is experienced by uh, migrants. So Sarita's a migrant. How is it experienced and how it's kind of recurring in their lives? You know, like it, it's there's the trauma of leaving her home. There's the trauma of leaving her grandmother, there's the trauma of leaving um, of um, leaving her family to, to sort of like become, you know, become an adult and have her own life independent of her family, even that is a leading. And then there's the trauma of, of watching this kind of episode unfold and watching the, you know, the public reaction to it and the political, you know, um, games, that, games that were sort of taking place in the, in the media and so forth. So there's all these traumatic events happening and, and I think I wanted to kind of show how the past isn't a territory that's exiled. It's actually she's living with the past and it's, there's a lot of flashbacks in the story where she's, got, she's flashing back to, to living in Nepal. And even in that moment, in that particular um, place where she's living in Nepal, she herself was part of a diverse community where there were Tibetan refugees. So she's experienced that. And she herself is, is while she's Hindu girl, she is um, not an Indian girl. So she comes in a way from a minority, a mixed racial minority. Her mother's like a lower class than caste than her father. And that's created issues in her family. And she experiences the kinds of judgmental um uh, registers from other girls when she's in Australia and sort of tending the the temple and so forth. So um, those kinds of cultural expectations, you know, to do with in her own culture, to do with notions of purity and notions of um, authenticity are being challenged for, for Sarita. So there's an enormous amount of trauma and there's an, that the past is constantly with her and um, I think, you know, this, the, the boat accident is like the thing that kind of crystallises all of these traumas. And even though she's in a, on the other side of the, the country watching this on television, watching it being replayed and replayed in news reports, 
she's experiencing it in a way. She's she's so that's the idea of the story that that we're not actually so separate from these sufferings and that um, I, I wanted to question. I wanted to put forward, you know, how particular minorities are affected by the kinds of political dynamics around belonging, citizenship, um, and and refugees and so forth. Because obviously a wall of water is actually you know sort of it's a short story but but it's 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 a short story even for a short story um and and yet there's this tremendous layering in um and i guess complexity and sophistication of registering a character and her interiority in a way that both sort of exercises control and restraint you know, sort of that almost becomes kind of like that um, sort of structure of the wall of water that's preventing, you know, sort of the, 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 the sort of the potential for breakdown for deluge that's maintaining, you know, sort of, I, I guess, the functioning human being who's, you know, sort of working as the as the as a refugee lawyer, so, you know, and who has this, you know, sort of, we come to feel this very sort of tenuous, um, you know, sort of grasp on keeping things together. Um, and, and what really strikes me is that even as you're so um, sort of the story is so deeply embedded in the real, um, you know, sort of from referencing the violence against, um, you know, sort of stu Indian students in because the real events that you're referencing there with the stabbing of, of um, Singh and also uh, I, I think the other event as well. So, so we're very much dealing with the real. And yet all of it is deeply integrated into the sort of the artistry and the creativity of the story. And I think a lot of that works because of the restraint, but also your powerful use of metaphor and, you know, sort of the way that something, say, for example, like the, um, the jacaranda tree, um, you know, sort of really um, comes to sort of map quite an original um, sort of image for what for, for, for the experience of you know I guess in a sense a, you know, a, a, a human condition because you're very much tapping into the fact that you know sort of um, that there is there is this uh, sort of complexity to being that just cannot be you know sort of reduced to the kind of language that we hear in sort of political and mainstream discourse. Yeah, I, yeah, that's really, I, I agree with you. I think especially what you're saying about political and mainstream discourse, it's very unusual that we think about refugees, I suppose, in that kind of poetic language. You know, we don't, it's not described in that kind of language. There's often a lot of legal stuff and, um, you know, there's, there's other, um, yeah, political opinions around it. Because, um, um, yeah. Because obviously you're a, a poet as well as a short story writer. And, and I think, you know, sort of the um, sort of the, the way that that jacaranda tree comes to life as an image, but then also is that sort of um, fracturing um, so that in the end, uh, you know, sort of we're left with that imminent sense of the tree without its blossoms, um, you, you know, and it sort of gathers force because it, it's there in the beginning. Um, and then it's it, it sort of revisited in, 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 in memory and, and then it returns to us at the end with the full force of the story um, behind it. Um, do you find that those sorts of um, sort of images come to you 
as you're writing, do they sort of, um, do you look for them when you're thinking I need to tackle, you know, sort of a story that's pretty hard hitting? Um, how am I going to work this into, um, you know, sort of a, the short story, which is, it's, it's so crafted, you know, it's that sort of next, it's that step away from poetry. Um, so, so yeah, do you, how, do you, do you sort of make those kinds of conscious decisions or, or do you find that they come out of your, you know, sort of imagining and, and imaginary? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really good question, Michelle. Um, it's a hard one to answer because um, I think it's probably, if I think about it, a little bit of both, you know. I think, to be honest, like when I'm, when I'm writing, it's not always conscious decision-making. So there's a lot of trust involved in writing. Um, and, you know, sometimes they're false beginnings, like you'll start a story in a particular way. And I have to say that this was actually the beginning of a novel. That's how it actually started. And I want to say something about that now that you mention it. Um, it was the beginning of a novel called Writing Without Krishna. And I particularly wanted it to be about the story of a mixed ancestry Indian woman, of, of South Asian woman, because that's very close to my own identity of being mixed ancestry. And I think that kind of story is very hard to be absorbed into the more uh, mainstream form of the novel per se. It's um, because the novel um, is um, a form which tends to sort of be um, absorbed by um uh, dynamics, capitalist dynamics, really, of sales and marketing and branding and um, the investment, the way the areas of investment at an institutional levels in in kind of um, literary um, literary genres and um, you know and, and kind of literary discourses like multiculturalism and so forth and and cosmopolitanism and nationalism. So. The novel in that regard um, was difficult for me to publish and I had some rejections with it. And that's at that point where I, I realised that the rejections were partly also about who I was. It was about this type of story that I wanted to tell, which was a story about um, not like a dominant group of people, as you would expect, like an Indian Hindu Indian from New Delhi or from Mumbai or um, it wasn't also an a Muslim girl from that kind of background it was it was a smaller country it was she was from Nepal she was mixed ancestry herself and I think this speaks to how very difficult it is for those mixed ancestry minority narratives to be spoken and articulated in the mainstream and and to find a place you know like there's a lot of kind of um um movement for, for people to be representative within the, the for authors to be representative within the genre of the novel whereas i think the short story did give me an opening to because it's a shorter form it could be published with um, in a literary journal um, or a book, an anthology. It was actually published in an anthology, which was called Alien Shores. Um, first up, it was edited by Sharon um, Sharon Rundell, and 
Menakshi Bharat, and they they it was a collection of stories around refugees in India, Australia, and that and that's how it sort of first was published. Um, so I was able to get get the story published that way because it was a shorter form. And maybe that's why also there's so much layering in it. And it was at that time that, um, and there's so much sense of like, there's so much of a story that could actually be expanded into a novel. Um, it was over the, t- over the course of time, it took a number of years, I was realising that um, many of the chapters in the book were really worthwhile chapters and that they could be adapted into short story form. So I think that's, um something that I want to mention that I don't actually work consciously to say I'm going to pursue a poetic image for this particular story I have to trust my imagination and I have to trust my writing process and that takes a lot of time and and um because you know it's like it's just a very slow painstaking process and there are a lot of false starts and um, frustrations really in that time until you get towards something that's nearing what you want to do and sort of nearing what, what where you feel this is this is this is achieved what I want to achieve. Um, so I think in answer to your question about the metaphor, it's a, it's a really good question and I think I it is a rather poetic story and some might say, why did you do that? And I think there's probably some critics were very kind about my book and I didn't hear critics raising this issue about this particular story, but I'm sure that there are some critics who might wonder why I use that kind of language for the story, which is dealing with people's lives and hardships in a very, um, you know, much more real way that people are, kind of like losing losing their their life put on hold or losing their life drowning so forth I think that I think what I was wanting to do in the story is also um create the sense of how much of the trauma is held in the mind and how much and the metaphor can do that the metaphor becomes something that's not actually concrete right it's it's like you a metaphor that is where you take two very disparate things and you show the commonalities. And in that moment, you know, of showing these commonalities, you create, you know, a, a moment of insight, a moment of um, a small epiphany. And that's what um, I think happens in our conscious mind. We have these, we're consciously bringing threads of memory to um, and connecting them in our mind with random images and random random metaphor making is happening as we as part of our conscious process and a lot of my work is about conscious process and how that can be kind of committed to writing because for me the conscious process more than any other place is home is the idea of home for me and so in that sense you know that's why I think this image making was happening because I wanted and when I read the story again, I realise how many sort of flashbacks there are, how many leadings there are. She's, you know, she's leaving the valley where, you know, the valley where she lives in the in the in the, in the Himalayas, and then she's like leaving New Delhi Airport, and she's also having flashbacks to 
meeting um, a Tibetan woman making prayer flags. And she's also, and the prayer flags are sort of um, the image of movement in the prayer flags is um, metonymous with the jacarandas, right? And, and the movement of the jacarandas. So the idea that, that in our conscious mind, we can see things in the external world, which create emotions in our internal world and create spaces of refuge or spaces where we are arguing in a way with what's what we witness in the world, which is often violent and unfair and unjust. Um, and these spaces in our mind are created where we, we're kind of jostling these, um, these, these dynamics around. And, and, and sometimes it is an image like, you know, of, of maybe air moving through, through a, a jasmine, a flowering of jasmine or something like that in spring, you know, and, and yet the movement somehow brings up other things in our conscious mind. So I wanted to create that sense that, Yes, she's on the other side of this of the country. She's watching this accident, this terrible catastrophe happening on television. Um, but she's not entirely passive, you know, even though these images do seem poetic and they do seem passive, they're actually part of a whole, you know, very in very involved, um, very committed. Um, argument that's going on in her mind about how she reconciles these traumas, how she reconciles um, um, these different cultures and um, these different departures that she's had, these leavings, wh where does that situate her as a conscious, sentient human being watching suffering at, um, in other people, watching death and, and, and how does she... Um, how does she sort of like, where, how does she position herself in relation to all of these things? I also think that the image of the jacaranda at the university is also quite important in the story for me because I wanted to, that sense of layering of a place of education, a place of, you know, the gardens around the university where there's the jacarandas at Sydney University and that gorgeous jacaranda um, in the main quadrant, I think. And it's it's like, these are the halls of learning and how do they kind of come to terms with this kind of um, human catastrophe that's happening and, and how do we, you know, we may have been to university, we may be quite, we may have lived in other countries and be um, for all intents and purposes cosmopolitans, um, but is that really being... Um, is that are those values of cosmopolitanism being upheld? Are we? Is there peace in the world? Is there? Um, is there equality? Is there? You know, graciousness between cultures in allowing and permitting others to enter our country and 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 sharing our home. Do we really have these kind of you know universal values which we learnt about in the halls of learning? You know, under the auspices of Kant and you know. The Enlightenment philosophers. So I wanted, I wanted, I wanted that layering of the jacaranda, you know, to come through as well, in terms of thinking about when we think about education, when we think about university, we're talking about the mind, right? We're talking about the mind that these things that happen out there 
are in our mind and processed in our mind, in our conscious mind, not not just, um, you know, as something that's news, that's media, that we flick through and um, swipe our phones from one article from one um, article to the next. That's what I was kind of trying to. I think that's the fu- the function of the imagery in the story. But, but it's also that essential quality of the imaginary, isn't it? Because so much rests on how we imagine the world can be and 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 should be, and for there to be that sort of, um, you know, sort of that that drive towards political change, things have to change sort of within before anywhere else. And I think metaphor can be very empowering and energizing because, as you say, it's often experienced in the mind of the reader as an epiphany, which is a, a sort of a burst of energy um, that. That, that sort of rather than that, uh, you know, sort of, I guess, debilitating right. being overwhelmed where, you know, you, you can't do anything, but actually in, in that sort of that rush, that moment's rush, um, then actually you, you feel um, you, you feel the potential for change and that all of those norms that we accept that, you know, that's outside our remit, that's outside our remit, this isn't our responsibility, you know, all of those things get reshuffled and, and I guess, you know, sort of that's always been, I guess, the power of, um, you know, sort of literature. And it's been so much about why writers write, you know, to change the world and, and change the way the world is seen um, because, you know, sort of ultimately uh, that, that's where political change comes from, doesn't it? I mean, it is it's mm, one of the really powerful, right. um, you know, sort of elements of, of writing that I think, you know, sort of often either gets forgotten or the, or because we because writing and literature tends to be such a sort of uh, uh, you know sort of a, a little thing within it within a society we forget that it really does um, you know sort of punch above its weight I, I, I think um, and it has yeah. this wonderful trickle trickle on effect um, because you know sort of obviously um, a, a wall of water came out of you know, a potential for a novel um, and yet um, letter to Pessoa a, a you know such an elegant um and you know sort of really substantial collection um of of short stories do you find that as a writer um because you are a poet an essayist a novelist um do you have moments where you think wow you know I need the short story now or I need the poem now or I'm because obviously you've been very busy working on um edits for your upcoming novel um wolf um which uh you know is is an incredibly consuming thing to do to be doing especially i think during lockdown um but do, do you have that sort of um relationship to the, the sort of the different forms where you'll consciously think you know sort of now is the time for the poem now is the time for the novel now is the time for the short story yeah you know right yeah well first of all i just want to say that I agree with you about the the, the, the function of, of literature being, you know, it's the imagine using the imagination to inspire and to 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 sort of as a catalyst for, for bringing about change. And we can't underestimate how much we can actually achieve through literature, especially I think now where there's so much, you know, where where the foundations of our democracy are being challenged so greatly, and the foundations of justice within our community in terms of the way that different people are being treated is um, I think now more than ever literature will be very important for us as, as, as a voice and as a force of um, you know inspiring people and pushing back and resisting 
um, political oppressions and um, and you know um, and just human human selfishness and greed and so forth that that um, corrupts the way we want to live as ideally as possible. Um, uh, so yeah, I yeah I agree with you, and I think um, there's also another aspect to the imagination too that it's sometimes just a self. You know, it's it's it, it, there's nothing wrong with literature being soothing and placatory and, and healing our trauma. And in some ways, I think we sense that with Sarita, that she's, that, you know, she, those images for her, which her, which she's turning over in the mind are also ways that she's healing. She's using the imagination to help her heal these traumas. I think there's nothing wrong with that. Um, yeah, um, in terms of, and that comes to the, the question that you asked about, that brings me to that question about what forms that I choose. So, like, I would say that there's one particular form that I do sense when, um, and that's poetry. Like, I know when I am have a poetic voice coming through that's sort of telling me, okay, it's it's a poem that wants to come out and it needs to be written so yeah, um, there's definitely uh, that voice and that register. Um, the short story, um, I wrote a short story uh, last year around some travels in Northern Territory. And um, that story, I, I think sometimes a short story is a very good way to put down things that you've experienced and um, to, to, to capture a very intense experience um, which has different dynamics impacting through it. Um, I think that's a, often a good thing to do to put it down. It doesn't necessarily mean, though, that it's going to work as a short story in um, a collection or in a journal or what have you or that it's going to, to be the beginning of a short story collection or anything like that. It's I, I think my writing in general is much more um free freestyled and organic in that I like to be able to have the flexibility to to think about out beyond genre and think about writing as as just writing beyond you know I have to do this or I have to do that and there's crossovers but just I think just to be the writer that I have to be um sometimes there's a different register when you write an essay you you start you use um, more argument you bring that into the essay form um, and less imagination probably although I'm trying to write different kinds of essays now I'm trying to actually write essays which blend narrative elements and um, which give space to myself as a writer not necessarily a critic that's been appointed by the white um, the white literary culture to speak on behalf of people of colour, writers of colour. I'm not, I'm wanting to write essays now because I'm often asked to write those kinds of essays because I can, I suppose, because I have a tr track record of writing criticism. I'm asked to do that, but I, I want to, to bring into that, those essays now, my perspective of, well, I'm actually fundamentally a creative writer. I don't want to be um, just relegated to writing criticism because I can or because that's how I'm perceived to be 
and also I think there's an there's an aspect that I want to bring into criticism now which which acknowledges that I resist the role of criticism in remaining outside in in in, in, in placing itself outside of particular dynamics which are actually shaping the canon and which are actually kind of answering to an exclusionary logic of the white settler national identity. So I, I, want to, I want to challenge that. You know, I want, I want to bring into my essays fictional elements and sometimes creative non-fictional elements that show who I am, that don't, don't create criticism as a purely objective space which um, is an authority in its own right. I want to show criticism as being a much more vulnerable space than I think it's portrayed as being, you know, it's, pro it's projected as being a kind of authority. It's absorbed by institutions and becomes part of institutional readings of authors, which is a very powerful role that criticism has, you know, and I think that it needs to be more accountable in that regard. So my role now as a critic of colour, I feel, is to make criticism or to demonstrate how criticism can be that much more accountable. So um, I must say that I find really most pleasurable is writing the novel, but it's also very, very hard in the sense that it takes a long time and a lot of energy. So, um, so could you tell us a little bit about how long, um, you know, a novel be might take because um, you've just sort of, I guess, completed edits. Um, we've talked, you might even like to talk a little bit about Wolf um, and, uh, you know, sort of give us a little bit of a, a, an insight into, you know, I guess just what can be expected in, in that process, you know, sort of from inception to, you know, sort of, I guess, handing over um, and back. And <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess it's different for different writers, you know. So there are some writers who do write um, much more quickly and um, can 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 produce novels more quickly, but um, and and really um, they can produce really beautiful, um, highly acclaimed novels. Uh, so, but for myself, I can only speak for myself. Um, it does take a while, um, you know, it really takes a number of years and um, many drafts, um, uh, restructuring. Um, I've just had to restructure my whole novel over the last two years. Um, and um, I, at, the, at, at, the start, at the outset, I thought it was like too hard to even begin the process, you know, and it was daunting, but um, sometimes you just need to kind of be a normal person and not be a writer for a while. You know, like I, I remember sort of like having this, going to a coffee shop with the publisher and having a cup of tea and, and that we're talking about the perspectives of the protagonists in the novel and at, at uh, the, the draft that, that had preceded the current draft there was like um, one the story told from one person's perspective followed by 
this the same story told by a, a much late a much a narrator from another time so going from 1925 to to 2017 so two narrators telling the same story right and um anyway we're having and they wanted the publishers wanted those perspectives to be um interleaved so it was 1925 back to 2017 you know one narrator to the other sort of interleaved through the novel and overlapping and I kind of thought it was just so it felt so wrong you know and it felt so massive to make that kind of restructuring changes um and then I was having a cup of tea with the publisher and and he was saying well you know Michelle you know you <laughs> You don't have to, you can just go Daisy Mina, Mina, Daisy. Daisy, Daisy, Mina, Mina. <laughs> and it was just something about the way he said it. We were laughing and we were just having a cup of tea and, and it's just, it was just a breakthrough for me. There's something about the way he said it and I can just remember his body language. <laughs> it seemed like, okay, that's, sort of all, that's all there is to it, you know. Daisy uh -huh. Mina. <laughs> such a lovely story to share with us because because I, I I think you know it is we get so locked down into that writing process and so so sort of blinkered and, and sometimes it you know we enjoy that but it can also be just so confining and and actually sometimes you know to, to almost say that we have to prescribe for ourselves you know sort of some so, so, so some human time some you know sort of some connecting back with other people some you know lighting you know sort of lightening the load and um you know sort of laughing about the process and 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 you know sort of I guess gaining that that wonderful um you know sort of perspective where you can have a little bit of a giggle about you know sort of something that you can take very seriously <laughs> and and of course need to take seriously but but you know sort of making that part of the process um and and you know sort of outwardly sort of naming it as part of the process you know that connecting with other people and and seeing it from you know sort of from from a different angle and um yeah I I think yeah, it, was, it, it was it was really, it was really so right you know it was so funny because it was I was really I had a writer's block around how do I do this how do I tackle this and it was just that conversation that somehow just making me laugh about it, making me relax about it. And then I remember sort of, you know, I'd sort of basically stalled it for six months and not been able to start. And then, you know, that conversation happened and then um, I gave it a, I gave it a go and made my first attempt. And thereafter there was more editing to do as well. I would say this, though, that for um, young writers out there and, you know, um, that it is something to remember that, oh, however daunting it may be and sometimes depressing it is to have have those um, kind of, they feel like rejections, right, when when the work's not, not right and still needs to be restructured and changed. However daunting it may be, it's, I think you have to remember that ultimately once the book is published, there's no taking it back and any mistakes that are there will remain there and so it's so worthwhile it, it means to me more than anything the most important thing is to try and get the work as right as it can be because um because of that reason that it can't be taken back so um I think sometimes there's a lot of pressure on writers to produce and to also be in social media there's that's that's something that I think we're going to see really 
change the whole dynamics of the industry. Um, we're already seeing it and a lot of writers feel that pressure and that's almost kind of contrary to writing where you actually need the space and the time to sit down and to be with your work and, you know, to be with your imagination and, um, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. Look, I, I, it does. And, you know, it, it would be lovely just, you know, perhaps to, um, you know, to, to sort of finish off with maybe just a, a, maybe a little bit of insight into just how you um, ended up with a collection of short stories, um, <laughs> you know, sort of that was published. And also just maybe any, any, any tips um, that you might have um, for writers would be lovely, Michelle. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. Um, yeah, I was just really fortunate um, that um, I had a couple, some fortunate, um, I, I, like winning a competition, a prize, a literary prize for um, a short story. So I do recommend that if you're starting out and you're having difficulty, one thing that you can do is publish in journals and maybe, you know, pitch your work there and, um try competitions as well because often when that happens um, you might hear from an agent or a publisher might reach out to you or you can pitch and you might find that um, it's accepted and that's more or less what happened in my case I was just so lucky that um, that happened and I was able to um, you know work with a publisher as good as Girimondo um, work with Ivory and Dick um, I must say he's definitely one of the best in the industry in terms of you know um his editing and they produced a beautiful book um and I got I received a lot of guidance around it as well there were some uh literary devices that I was using in the collection which were um developing epistle epistolary letters to writers that who have inspired me um, or who I wanted to be in conversation with. A lot of them were writers who um, have had complex identities, um, such as Pessoa, such as Virginia Woolf, such as um, um, Borges and um, Derrida as well, who is Algerian, French. So... I was really interested in how so many of these writers were um, kind of working through issues of around gender and issues around ethnicity in terms of constructing identities because that was what I, I learned from that novel that never never did happen was that it is really hard to write the minority story and I think that's that's been the biggest focus of my writing to to kind of the task of my writing in the last, I'd say, 10, 15 years has, has been to, 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 to work out ways of telling the minority narrative and ways of also championing it in other forms, such as criticism as well. So um, I was just really lucky. Um, and um, I think there are so many more opportunities now as well. Um, I think, um, uh, yeah, but I, I think also the short story is is a, is a genre that can be hard to publish a collection of in. Um, so um, I think writers should be aware that they will be exposed to rejections and that's okay because we've all been there. Um, 
and it's really just persistence that you need to um, to achieve your goals. And um, those who persist, you know, they they will they will get there. I think and and, and publish their book. <laughs> um, do you agree, Michelle? <laughs> Uh, look, I, I think that uh, sort of persistence and resilience, because you know you 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 sort of do have to make sure that you keep coming at it, kind of with a with a sort of a full heart. Um, you know, you can't afford to, <laughs> you know, sort of to, to diminish your uh, sort of passion and love for um, for writing, which you know is is the danger of all of those rejections. And and I think that's why it can be so you know sort of helpful to hear people talk about them openly, embrace them, and acknowledge them, um, and then. Also, just say it's 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 persistence, but it's it's also persistence um, and coming back to it with this sort of open heart. I, I think is 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 is, all, is always the thing that I think you know sort of that that pure love for what you're doing. Um, just as a as a as a last sort of moment, would you like to give a little bit of a, a, a plug for your novel? You know, sort of coming out uh, very soon. A little bit of a promo. What do you what do you reckon? <laughs> I would love to, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated being able to talk to you about my work um, and particularly the story. Um, gave me the opportunity to read it again and think about it again. So thank you so much. Um, and, yeah, I would just like to say about my novel that, yeah, it will be coming out next year. It's going to be published with Hachette and um, it's part homage and to Virginia Woolf and also... Um, it's engaging with her novel, Mrs. Dalloway, from the perspective of um, a brown woman. <laughs> so I hope that um, your 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 uh, readers will will keep their ears peeled around that publication next year. <laughs> Michelle, thank you so much uh, for your generosity and wisdom. It's just been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much, Michelle. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's episode of From the Lighthouse. Thank you so much for joining us. And please remember, uh, you can like us from uh, wherever you listen to your podcast and feel free to leave comments or questions uh, if you've got the chance. Much appreciated. Thank you. Bye.